0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning when you were all getting ready for church, what was it like? Was there something really special about this morning? Was there something about this morning that made you go about your morning routines in a, in a unique way? Or was it a morning like most mornings? You got up and had breakfast, you got dressed, took a shower, you got in the car, you drove over here. This morning, when you were doing all of these things, were you shaking and trembling with fear about what you were about to do? Were you overcome with excitement, hardly able to contain yourself because you were going to church? Well, probably not, since this is something that we get to do every single week. It's something that is a part of our normal weekly pattern. We do this all the time, right? Well, this morning we get to have a reminder of just how special it is that we, get to have a relationship with God where we can do this every week. We get to have an intimate relationship with him as the congregation. We get to be reminded how wonderful it is that God, God himself, visits his people in a special way when we are gathered for worship. Especially on Sundays when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're given an even more vivid reminder of the fellowship that we have with God. We get to sit, we get to eat and drink in the presence of the Lord God Almighty. We get to have a meal with Him. But that fellowship that we enjoy there is in essence exactly the same as what we have this morning and on every other Sunday and also in the rest of our lives as we go along with God who lives in our hearts. And that is a fantastic thing, isn't it? We live with God. We're here with God himself. But because this is such a normal thing for us, we forget how utterly splendid it really is. And I think that if we were more fully conscious on Sunday mornings about the fullness of God's power, the fullness of God's majesty, His holiness, and we didn't have the assurance of His love for us through Jesus Christ, then yes, we would be trembling before we came through that door, before we took our seats. This morning we may be reminded from Exodus about the wonder of fellowship with God. And so the theme this morning is that the Lord brings us near in fellowship. And we'll see four aspects of this, and these follow one after another, working our way through the text, that even though God is fearsome, and even though his majesty is too great, and even though our sins are too horrid, we can eat and drink with God. So first we'll see that even though God is fearsome, we can eat and drink with the Lord. And our first point uh, follows from verses 9 through 10a of the text. We'll read that portion once more. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. Now this morning, and for that matter, every single Sunday, we get to be transported for a little while back to Mount Sinai, which is where this is all occurring. Every Sunday morning, we hear the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as God gave them to the people of Israel, after he had freed them from bondage to Egypt, he took them out of there, brought them out to the desert, he appeared to them from the top of the mountain. And what we have to be conscious of when we recall these things, when we consider what's going on here, is that God is in a way introducing himself to the people who didn't really know him yet. He's showing himself to the people of Israel for the first time. He's revealing himself to them. At that time, we have to remember, they did not have the scriptures. We think of the people of Israel as always having the book of the covenant, the the, the Hebrew scriptures, that they had this revelation from God, but there was a time when they didn't have it yet. They had the traditions that had been handed down through the patriarchs, but Moses, who was there at that time, he was the one who penned all of this for the people of Israel. He wrote these inspired words for them. So this is brand new to this generation of people that have just come out of Egypt and they are encountering God himself. They'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They knew the promises that God had made to their forefather Abraham. I will be God to you and your descendants after you. They even had that promise that they will go down to Egypt and They will be there for many generations, and then I will bring them out of there. So all of these things are coming true, but while they were slaves, they hadn't had this religious life where they were able to walk with God and and live with God like they were about to start doing. This was the beginning of all of that, and God was introducing himself to them. I am your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who just did all these things that you saw. I did this in order to bring you to myself, to make you mine, so that I can be your God and you can be my my very special and beloved people. And this is where he gives his law. He says, since we're going to have this relationship, we're going to live together, you're going to live with me, pure and holy God, well, I'm going to give you the terms of this relationship. These are the, the terms of the covenant, that I'm establishing with you. And he gives them his law. He gives them the way that they're supposed to live with him. So yes, we, we briefly get reminded of that every week, that from Sinai, God gave his law, but we often forget how terrifying that was. The encounter with God for the people of Israel was a terrifying thing. They didn't know him yet, and so everything that they saw and heard there it, it gripped them with, with fear. God comes down onto the mountain, it says, in the sight of all the people, there was thunder, there was lightning, a thick, dark, dense cloud covered the mountain. This supernatural event was happening. There was this ear-splitting trumpet blast. The people are absolutely quaking with fear. So he gives his law to them, and this is what we read about their reaction afterward. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. We read there, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off, or, or they, they recoiled, they reeled backward because they were so afraid of all of this. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak with us, lest we die. They were so afraid. The sights and the sounds of of the presence of God, this was all too much for them. Their constitution was melting with terror because of God. This is God himself. Think about that. God had already assured them of his good intentions for them. God already told them that that he was bringing them to himself and he was going to treat them well. This is what he told them just before he gave the law. This is Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. So he tells them, he's assuring them. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob "'and tell the people of Israel, "'so comfort them with these words. "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, "'how I bore you on eagles' wings "'and brought you to myself. "'Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice "'and keep my covenant, "'you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, "'for all the earth is mine. "'And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests "'and a holy nation.' These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's assuring them. I'm going to take care of you. I have good intentions for you. But God's greatness is too much. And we can see that the people are rightly reacting to his presence. You think of The way Isaiah reacted when, in his vision, he's transported into the throne room of God and God's holiness is overwhelming and and Isaiah is conscious of his own uncleanness and and he says, you know, woe is me, I am undone. He thinks, like, I'm going to die because I'm in the presence of God. This is the God who is appearing to the people of Israel and it is terrifying. And yet, God calls them to himself. He says... Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. The fear that they would have had going up to them, or going up to to be with God, to approach Him. How can we Come before so great a God. How could we come into his presence this morning? We ought to think of coming to church like ascending Mount Sinai into the presence of the thunder and the lightning and the cloud and the smoke and the fire. Going up Sinai like Moses and Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. We're doing something this morning. That is almost too marvelous for this world. And the next part of our text illustrates for us just how dazzling the presence of God really is. And that's our second point. And this is from verse 10b. God's majesty is too great. So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. And now we focus on this part of our text. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So these men of Israel went up and they saw God and I think that's maybe a little bit mysterious for us. And since it's recorded that they saw God, you would think that maybe in our text here, in these verses, there would be a little bit more of an elaborate description of what that was like. There were almost you know, 80 witnesses to this site. And we, we, we could assume that 80 of these men together could remember this together and confer with what their eyes beheld, and they could record exactly what God looked like, right? But we don't have that. We don't have anything like that. and Maybe that's because even though God somehow, we don't know in what form he appeared to them, But even though he appeared to them in in some way, some of his majesty was evident to their eyes, it was still too wonderful to comprehend and to put into words. And perhaps if there was a description, a visual description of what God's majesty was like, We might try to paint it and, you know, we can see how that would become sort of an image of God and, of course, God doesn't want that. There's no attempt to capture the majesty of God in imagery here. Words fail. And in case we're wondering, here's how far it fails Even the floor that God is standing on is too majestic for words. We read there that under his feet, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. So under his feet was, well, it it wasn't really a pavement, it wasn't really a floor, but it was, as it were, a, a pavement or something like a floor made of sapphire. And we can imagine the splendor of that, even though it still defies description. A floor made of sapphire, this brilliant blue gemstone. And whatever this floor-like thing was, this pavement, it was as clear, as pure, as brilliant as the sky itself. Literally, it was like the essence of the sky in its clearness. And I think that's something that that resonates well with us here in Edmonton. After at the end of of a long winter, the winter skies here are are absolutely stunning, aren't they? They are sapphire blue. That's actually the the word I've found myself using to describe the skies to my loved ones back home when I'm on the floor, or when I'm on the floor, when I'm on the phone with them, uh, you know, talking about just how beautiful these these winters are, the dazzling white snow and, the, and the, the radiant, clear, sapphire blue sky. You almost have to avert your eyes because of the brightness and the beauty here. But what these men saw when they went up to the mountain was immeasurably greater than that. The floor never mind what God himself, what his glory and majesty was like. But even the floor that he was standing on was too dazzling for words. How much more the glory of God himself. The scriptures are full of hints of the radiance of God. You think of when Paul says that, it's in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians thirteen, when he's talking about the um, being caught up to the third heaven in a vision, maybe or in the body, maybe he doesn't know, but God knows. But he heard inexpressible things, things that he can't repeat. This is the splendor of the most holy place, the presence of God. This God is so glorious. The splendor of his presence is something that no eye has ever seen, no ear has heard, no no imagination can begin to imagine such glory. We think of John at at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. He sees someone whom he can't really describe. He doesn't say, I saw the Son of Man. That is, you know, Jesus glorified. He says, "I, I saw one like the Son of Man. Indescribable, but he was recognizable at the same time. And in Revelation, we're given glimpses into the majesty of God's presence. A sort of a peek behind the curtain. The beauty of the holy city of God, where he has promised that, that we get to live with him. And, and he promises that we are as good as there. He considers us already seated with Christ in the heavenly places in that glorious splendor. And today, while we worship the Lord, while we worship God, and and while we go through our lives with God, God has allowed us a taste of that joy. The question is how can this be? How can we have that? How can we have a taste of that? How can we have a beginning of that eternal joy? While we are who we are, sinful, broken people. How can we be allowed into such a state when we're so polluted with sin? And this is what we consider in our third point, that God welcomes us into fellowship even though he's so fearsome, even though his majesty is so great, and even though our sins are too horrid. And this is reflected in Uh, verse 11a of our text. We'll read that. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they go up, they see the splendor of God and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. These last couple of verses have helped us to, to sort of get a sense of the majesty and holiness of God. He is so far beyond us and it's not just because of his the his brilliance, the the splendor of his majesty that we feel that that we have to shrink back from him. That's one of the reasons, right? And we think of of how bright and hot something like the sun is. The sun is 93 million miles away and, and it can be intense. You can't you can't even look at it. It's, it's that far away, and we can't even look at it without doing damage. To our eyes. And if you're in a in a very hot region and you stand in full view of the sun, exposed for even just an hour, you can be severely uh, wounded by this. We recoil from the the power and the brilliance of the sun. But that sun is 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 nothing compared to the power and the majesty of God. God can, you know, hold the sun, the sun is, is a speck in his fingertips. Right, But how much more powerful and sickening to the pit of our stomachs is it when we consider God's purity, his holiness, and his complete hatred of sin? And we know ourselves, right? Sin is absolutely abhorrent to God. He does not tolerate it one bit. He cannot because he is God. You think of, think of the worst smell you have ever smelled. And I'm not going to help you with the description of that. I'll let your imagination do that. The worst kind of smell that actually you know, makes you sick, that is a fraction, just a fraction of the distaste that God has for sin. Sin is a horrid stench. In God's nostrils. And because of his holiness. He has to blast it from his presence. No exceptions at all. Sin must be destroyed. It's like gasoline fumes. Approaching a fire. The fire just breaks out. And consumes it. It's in its nature to do so. That's God's holiness. When sin approaches. God breaks out against it. And here we have. You know, 80 or so sinful, stinking men, the stench of sin in their souls, daring to approach God and look at Him. Daring to approach God and be with Him. Why? How? How? could they know that God's fiery majesty wasn't going to flare up and destroy them all because of the filth that clings to them? Well, they knew that because God had assured them that they were washed clean in his eyes. Before God appeared on the mountain, he said that the people were to consecrate themselves, wash their clothes, be clean, because I'm going to appear to them, he says. Have the people consecrate themselves, wash themselves. And then just before these men went up, they were taught how they were made clean. This was part of our reading this morning, 24 verses 6 through 8. Moses took half of the blood so this is after the sacrifices were made Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and he said all that the Lord has or, and and they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and Moses took the blood so this is the other half of the blood and threw it on the people and said Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then he went up. Half of the blood on the altar, half of the blood on the people. This is making absolutely clear that the blood of that sacrifice is for them. They are made clean by the blood of another. Another one has died so that they can be acceptable to God, so that he wouldn't break out against them, so that he wouldn't raise his hand against them. This is the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has graciously taught us the truth of our human condition. He has let us know the truth about ourselves, that we are corrupt, we're sin, we're polluted. That truth about our nature is a gracious word. Yes, it's accusing. Yes, it's condemning. But it's a word of grace. Because God is saying, even though you are unfit for my service, for my presence, and I ought to be breaking out against you and destroying you, I'm making a way for you to draw near. God's justice is something that he does not compromise because he is God. We are supposed to die for our sins. We're supposed to be punished forever because of them, but he has made it so that we don't have to do this. Instead, he has received us near to him in his love and his grace, and that's because he has provided a sacrifice. He gave his own dear son, Jesus Christ, to pay all of the penalties that we were supposed to pay, he died for us to satisfy the perfect wrath of God against our sins. The blood of Christ was taken into the most holy place itself. That's what the author to Hebrews shows so clearly for, for us. Even though we were such helpless, poor, despicable sinners... With no right to come before God, Jesus Christ opened the way for us to go in and be with God. And he did this by his own death, by the shedding of his own blood. What love that he would do such a thing to cover our sins. That's what we read in Hebrews, 24, or Hebrews 8, 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, God is holy, God is majestic, God is powerful. We shouldn't be allowed to approach him because of our sins, but the way has been opened. We have been washed, we have been cleansed, we've been renewed by the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. And now, now we can eat and drink with God. That's our last point here. Verse 11b, He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. It's an often repeated phrase. No one can see God and live. And that's almost what would automatically roll off your tongue when you were saying this phrase, they saw God or they beheld God and they died. That would be the way that you would expect this phrase to end. They saw God and they died. But they didn't die. They saw God and they survived. And they not only survived, you know they, they didn't just get by by the skin of their teeth They didn't see God and then narrowly escape with their lives. You know, terribly injured from the encounter. The way that that people maybe barely survive a lightning strike sort of thing. No, they saw God and they were alive and well. They saw God and they ate and drank. They ate and drank with him. That's an important part of, of covenant making. Because that's what God is doing here with his people. He's saying, I'm establishing my this relationship. I'm making a covenant with you, I'm making promises to you, and we're gonna live together in a certain way. When you make a covenant with someone, then you're in a special relationship with them, and you show this by having a meal together. You eat and drink together to give a full expression to the friendship and the partnership that you are going to enjoy together now. But this, this is a completely different category. Of covenant. This isn't, you know, two uh, creatures of the same state just agreeing to treat each other well. This isn't even, you know, a, a king making an earthly king making a covenant with uh, with a lowly subject. Even that is quite wonderful. But no, this is God Himself entering into covenant with wretched, sinful, poor. Creatures. It boggles our minds that this should happen. And yet this is what we are experiencing this morning. This worship service is a, is a fellowship sort of meal with God. And it isn't, merely the act of, it isn't merely the act of God from afar giving us provisions, giving us the things we need. Yes, he is doing that. He's giving you today your daily food and drink, the thing that you need to survive spiritually. He's giving you his word, the bread of life. He's doing that, but it's even more intimate than that. God is here with us letting us share in his existence. We are having a meal with God in his home. Again, the truth that this is happening today is illustrated when we have communion together with in the Holy Supper. We have a meal of fellowship. We speak to one another. We and God are in, are in communion and in dialogue. God reveals his, his heart for us in his word. He pours out his love. We respond to him with love, with songs and prayers. It's, it's a relationship. It's a covenant. This morning, we have a, a taste of that. We already have in our hearts the joy of fellowship with God, but at the same time, God has promised that more is coming. We will sit with God in His presence in heaven, in the union of heaven and earth, and we will have a a more glorious meal, the feast at the marriage of his lamb, the son. We think of the indescribable splendor of the majesty of God that that Moses and the others saw on the top of that mountain when they ate and drank with him. And, And we might wish that, boy, wish we could see that splendor, what that was like. It must have been really something to see that. But we do have something more wonderful than that today, and we can see it with our eyes of faith because the glory of God has been so powerfully and clearly and fully revealed in the sending of his Son. But a time will come, God promises, when we will see the fullness of the glory of God with our very eyes, when our faith will become sight and we will live with God In indescribable joy forever and ever. Amen.